Roll down tide. From the Clark Ford Studio in Oxford, Mississippi, this is the Beer Garden presented by Oxford Crystal. Like to hear a little bit more conviction in your take, though. There was a lot of maybes, a lot of what ifs, a lot of questions. You need to just get on here. You need to fire and and put me in a position where I have to tell you that you're wrong. And now, here's your host, Neil McCready. Nice, nice. To another edition of the Beer Garden presented by Oxford Crystal. I'm your host, Neil McCravey. Today on the show, we talk the economics of the whole COVID 19 pandemic with Josh Hendrickson. He's an associate professor of economics at Ole Miss, a friend of mine, one of the smartest people I know, and uh, kind of one of those people who, even though he is remarkably smart, can kind of communicate in layman's terms. I think you'll enjoy the interview. We'll get to it in a moment. First, let me tell you that I'm brought to you by the Oxford Crystal Highway 6 West in Oxford. It's uh, right next door to the Oxford Exxon, and it is home to uh, drive through. It's open. You can go in. You can uh, you can have your lunch, your dinner, your breakfast there. You can go through the drive through If you're still not comfortable, uh, you also can do uh, the delivery. You can go right through the drive through You can have them deliver it to you as well. Uber Eats, Grubhub, Waiter, DoorDash, all options for you at the Oxford Crystal. It's the home to the uh, fresh cra- cracked egg biscuit sandwich, the bacon, egg, and cheese, sausage, egg, and cheese. Great way to start your day. Also, the scrambler breakfast bowls. It is also home to the new Nashville Hot Chick, which is part of the Pick 5 for five fifty-five. there at Crystal. Free delivery on DoorDash and Uber Eats, so really no reason not to make the Oxford Crystal a part of your day, Highway 6 West in Oxford. I'm coming to you from the Clark Ford Studios. Clark Ford's in Amory, Mississippi, 662-257-1900 is the number. Call it, ask for Corey Clark, tell Corey what Ford product you're looking for, he'll send you a quote within 15 minutes and business hours. Right to the bottom line, no hassle, no haggle, you get your quote, and the rest is completely up to you. 662-257-1900. Josh uh, Hendrickson will join us in a moment on the Rafters Music and Food Hotline. Rafters on the Water is open. It's located at the Sardis Marina. So come experience outdoor dining unlike any place in North Mississippi. The uh, menu offers shrimp and Mississippi catfish platters along with gourmet burgers and Louisiana-styled po'boys on Leidenheimer French bread. It's open Wednesday and Thursday, 3.30 to 10 p.m., Friday through Sunday from 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. It's a newly expanded picnic-styled dining area. They also have signature appetizers, the Zydeco shrimps, fantastic. So is the crawfish egg rolls. Uh, Live music as soon as the governor allows it. That's coming soon. And they also offer a variety of fun cocktails, including their famous house frozen margarita. You can get to-go and curbside as well. 662-712. 6162. And we're brought to you by Community Mortgage. Community Mortgage located in Oxford, Memphis, DeSoto County, and Chattanooga. 30 years old this year. It's one of the oldest mortgage companies in the Southeast. All of the underwriting and the processing is done in Memphis, so you know you're getting local underwriting that understands your market. It's also the leader in condo financing in the Oxford market. So ask Jason Lowe about Community Mortgage's float down option that allows you to lock in the current rate. But if rates go down before you close, you get the lower rate. J-Lo, J-L-O-W-E, at communitymtg.com. And we're brought to you by LB's Meat Market. LB's is right across from Kroger in Oxford, 662-259-2999. 2008 University Avenue, again, right across from Kroger. Home to the freshest cuts in Oxford, whether it's chicken, beef, sausage, ground beef, pork, seafood, uh, whatever it is that you're looking for, man, they've got it at LB's. And not only do they have it, it's freaking incredible. You can go in, shop around, 662-259-2999. You can also call that number and ask for Greg Jones. Tell Greg what you want. He'll have it all packaged up for you. You can pay over the phone, all that stuff, if you're trying to avoid a lot of human interaction in these uh, crazy times that we're living in. So all of that can be done. Trust me, if you're in Oxford, if you're around Oxford, this is a trip you need to make. LB's is fantastic. Whether it's the picanha, whether it is uh, the bone-in pork chops, whether it's the uh, Denver cut uh, steak, 
bone-in ribeye, whatever the case may be, their sausages are just fantastic. You owe it to yourself to try LB's, make it a part of your day. They've got uh, meatloaf, the hash brown casserole. There's just so much there. So if this has been a busy time, you're a little stressed out, you want dinner to be taken care of, but you want it to be something special that your family has and enjoys, call Greg and the people there at LB's. They'll take extra care of you. Now to the Rafters Music and Food Hotline and Josh Hendrickson. Enjoy. My friend Josh Hendrickson, he is the an associate professor of economics at Ole Miss. You can follow him on Twitter at Rebel Econ Prof. That's Rebel E-C-O-N-P-R-O-F. He's kind enough to uh, spend some time with me here on the podcast. Josh, how are you? Pretty good. So uh, you've had uh, a few a few months now. You're a you're a sports fan too. If, I, if I'm correct, you're a, a Cubs fan. Uh, no baseball to to lean back on this time of year. You're not. I haven't seen you out at the park because obviously there's our, our, we have boys that are this roughly the same age. No soccer. No baseball. What's what's uh, what's pandemic life been like for you? Uh, yeah, I kind of don't know what to do with myself because pretty much out. Um, at, ba- at this time of year, pretty much out at baseball practice, soccer practice, baseball games, soccer games, pretty much every day this time of year. And so it's kind of crazy. And it's also crazy not to, you know, have any baseball to watch on TV. So I probably watch too many Cubs games, but the, I sort of always have it on, even if it's just background noise and it's kind of weird that it's just not there. You have a, your son's name is Carson. My son's name is Carson. How is, uh, how is he doing? How, how's your family kind of in this It's a, it's a culture shock for every single person, no matter how old or young you are. How, how are the, how's the fam holding up? Uh, I mean, I, 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 guess, I guess, okay. When the first symbol is, yeah. when the first, first answer is, uh, it, that's usually, that's usually, well, yeah. it's a little chaotic. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of the, you know, they're kind of at the point where, uh, there's, you know, I have three, so they're kind of at the point where they kind of have had enough of each other, I think all day, every day. But I mean, they, they find things to do. And, um, you know, we, fortunately after I got tenure, we sort of, we built a house and we have kind of a big backyard. So the boys have room to go out and play baseball and soccer in the backyard, even though they can't, you know, go to the park and stuff like that. And so, um, so that keeps them busy, but, uh, yeah, it's just normal kind of young children, uh, all together with kind of nothing to do, just kind of the, the mayhem that goes with that. But, you know, I really shouldn't complain, but it's a little, yeah, it's a little chaotic. All right, we're going to get to some economics type questions where I'm going to reveal just how not smart I am and you'll get an opportunity to show people how brilliant you are. Uh, before we do that though, I'm curious, you, we've talked to, uh, I had, had my daughter Campbell, who you know, and uh, her roommate Parker Sharon were on uh, the podcast. We talked about, from a student's perspective, what going online was like in the middle of a semester. Haven't had a chance to talk, uh, at least not on the podcast, to the other side of that, which is the professor side. It's like I would kept reminding Campbell a few times with her classes. I said, "Hey, none of these people at at Arkansas started the semester in January thinking, you know." What I really need to do is have a provisional plan for in case there's a pandemic that hits and I've got to go online for the entire second half of the semester. I'm going to assume that someone even as brilliant as you are was not necessarily thinking along those terms. So take me through from a professor standpoint how you how you went how you finished the semester online, how did it go, what did you learn along the way, that kind of thing. Well, I guess for me, um I didn't, I didn't want to do, I didn't want to just make the class what the class had been. So I know like a lot of people were just recording themselves, like lecturing and then posting videos online and you could just watch the lecture and things like that. And I wanted absolutely no part of that. Um, so what I tried to do is I tried to flip things around. So, uh, fortunately I had a lot of my notes for the classes I was teaching. I had them all typewritten uh, in pretty like narrative form because I, I oftentimes give these to students anyway as kind of like a supplement to the textbook or sometimes to substitute for a textbook depending on what class I'm teaching. But um, So I had a lot of these notes typed up and 
So I essentially gave them the notes and kind of said, okay, read through these and try to understand it. And then we're going to meet at the normal class time. We're just going to do it on Zoom. And then it's going to be a, we're going to try to do it as kind of like a conversation. So I want you to come with questions about, you know, what you don't understand and maybe I can help kind of explain it. So I kind of, uh, I kind of flip things around that way. Um, I don't know how well that worked. Uh, you know, like my students told me that, you know, it worked pretty, it worked okay. It worked pretty fine, but they also have an incentive to be really nice to me because I hadn't turned in <laughs> grades yet. So, uh, but, but, um, yeah, I, it, it was, it was really hard because economics is much more about how to think than what to think. I think a lot of people think that when you sign up for an economics class, I'm just going to tell you a lot of things about the economy and then you just kind of memorize those things and then that's it. But that's kind of not really what we do. It's more, uh, I mean, we do some of that, but it's a lot of trying to get you to think like an economist and, and figure out uh, how to answer certain questions and things like that. And so it's, it really doesn't lend itself well to online uh, teaching because especially, so, I mean, I had kind of a really weird experience in the sense that I was teaching two classes. One was an honors, like freshman level class. And the other one uh, was a PhD class. And, oh, wow. Two, two pretty completely <laughs> different sets of kids. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, I mean, the, the freshman level class was a lot easier to kind of adapt just because it's already much more conversational anyway, because I try not to cover, I try to cover the material more in depth and not try to overwhelm them with every subject that you could possibly introduce, which seems to be like the trend in like freshman level classes. It's just like, let's just overload them with information. And I try to just concentrate on a few important things and then really focus in on that stuff. So that actually lended itself well, I think, to more of a conversational stuff. But at the PhD level, uh, a, a lot of it, like you're, you're taking the stuff that they should already know and then you're adding wrinkles to it and it gets very sort of mathematical. And, you know, it's really hard to teach somebody something that requires that you're going to do a lot of calculus and algebra and, um, you know, on like a zoom. So, you know, uh, it doesn't, uh, uh, it doesn't lend itself well. So, I mean, it was kind of difficult to adapt. Uh, I think it went okay. Uh, I don't really ever want to do it again, but, <laughs> but I mean, uh, at least I, I think maybe I'll be, if I have to do it again, I'll, I'll, I'll be better next time. Cause I'll, have some experience and some more prep time, I guess. So let's go there because we get a lot of, I get a lot of questions obviously every day because of what I do for a living. I certainly understand it. I get a lot of questions about when do you think football is going to back, be back, Neil? What do you think football is going to look like? You know, will it be just SEC? Will fans be allowed? All the questions that, that are perfectly normal questions that I'm asking people myself uh, throughout the course of the day. But the, 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 the overriding question in my mind for personal and professional reasons is will kids be back on campus this fall? Will kids be back at Ole Miss? Will they be back at Mississippi state at Arkansas? At, uh, all, you mentioned Auburn at some of those schools. Will they be back at those places? And as of today, and I do this with anyone I talk to out of fairness to myself and to the subject that I'm talking to, we are recording this at 5:20 PM central t daylight time on uh, May the 12th. So if something changes by the time you hear this, that's your perspective. As of that moment, as of this moment, do you anticipate uh, in-person instruction in the fall? So that's my plan right now. I think the university has said that that's their plan. I don't, um, I don't have any reason to doubt that. I know that they've said that they're the, that that's their plan, and I know that they're kind of making contingency plans, if not. But I think that um, I look at it kind of from a big picture perspective. I think that if things aren't able to resume, even if we have to maybe, you know, even if you, you know, like I, I'm including maybe even moving back the, the semester to the beginning of September, the middle of September or something like that. Um, I think that if we're not back by then, then I think that there's going to be a lot of other 
uh, pressing issues uh, <laughs> that we're going to have to worry about as well, because that's a really long time. And I think that my issue is it's uh, is that it's unclear kind of what the objectives are um, at this point. And this isn't like an indictment of any particular political leader at the state level or the city level or the national level. Uh, it just seems like the objectives sort of aren't necessarily clear in terms of, you know, what the criteria is for us to go back to something like that. And I think that that's where a lot of the uncertainty is. So without knowing what the criteria is at that level, uh, it's kind of hard to predict. But my plan is that we're going to be back. And I think that most universities, that's their default plan is that we're going to be back. Um, but, you know, it also depends on what that looks like. So going back, you know, there could be some modifications, you know, so, I mean, there might be different ways for, you know, maybe professors who are at risk to maybe do some stuff remotely or, or something like that. Or, but, I, but also I think too, I think a lot of this, um, depends on how the places are handling it, where these universities are. So I think when it comes to Ole Miss, I think a lot of it is, is sort of what's going on in Oxford. Um, you know, August 1st, that that's going to have a big impact on, um, you know, what happens uh, when and if the students come back. You know, this is my problem with it, Josh. And tell me if I'm if, if I'm just not seeing the big picture here as well as as others. And this is not about Ole Miss or any school around here. But today, as we tape this, 23 California universities have announced that in the fall they'll be online only. 23. Fresno State, San Diego State, San Jose State included. Why on May the 12th, in your opinion, is it necessary to make that type of a decision? And are the people that are making those decisions understanding, in your opinion, the economic impact of those decisions being made today? No, I think it's insane to make that decision right now. There's way, like, I mean, if you think about this, this, I mean, think about two months ago. So, you know. Yeah, uh, two months ago last it, night was the night that the Rudy Gobert thing happened in Oklahoma City. Right. And so think about what we know now versus what we know then. And then think about two months from now, what we will know then versus what we know now. To me, it, it's completely insane. Now, I realize that there are certain things that you have to know by certain dates and things like that, but I don't see how we're anywhere close to the date where you need to know some of this stuff, uh, yet, you know, and I mean, and, uh, you know, I get that, you know, you might have to be cautious about some of these things, but in terms of like, just saying like, Oh, the university is going to be completely online. I think they have no idea that uh, they're they're jumping the gun way too much like there's there's not enough information we don't know what the world is going to look like august 1st and if you don't know what the world is going to look like august 1st then i don't know how you can make a decision about what to do in late august early september um you know at this point it just it just seems it, it just seems like um it seems to me like there are people who they look out and they see that there are people who are looking for certainty and so they have the, and so like they're trying to provide people with that certainty, even if that certainty is kind of like a hard truth. And I think like uh, that sort of overstates the value of of the certainty, right? You know. And the economic impact of that to a, I mean, I, I've I've been on a couple of those campuses. I was on the San Jose State campus not that long ago. Uh, I've I've covered a football game at Fresno, uh, one that I, I'm glad that I. I don't have to cover there uh, routinely, but but uh, I, I was there. I covered a game. Um, you know, you've seen the NCAA come out in in um, just recently. In fact, Mark Emmert, the president of the NCAA, said schools that are not students aren't on campus. They they're not going to play sports. I mean, he was very emphatic about it. Now, he ultimately will not be the one that makes that call, but but his voice to to pretend that his voice doesn't have volume is is naive. the The economic impact of that is. It's overwhelming. At least, and I, 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 listen, I, I looked at your Twitter feed today as I was kind of preparing for this interview, and I read uh, 
as much of, of your uh, of your paper as as I could before I realized that was in completely over my head. And before that, I had read a paper that was on your Twitter feed that uh, was was done by a Stanford professor, I believe, and and um, the equations and things that were involved in that. I, and my my daughter did really well in economics, and I, I now have a newfound respect for her freshman year. But re- regardless, it, it's it's difficult for me to imagine what that economic impact is. You're someone who is able to because of your your education and your intelligence to sometimes put a dollar figure on that an approximate dollar figure that makes some sense you you are able to equate what the loss of that revenue would be for for schools and I know you're not you're you're not up to speed on the economic situation of San Jose State University or San Diego State I'm not asking you to do that but just in general terms I mean the 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 loss of of monies is is catastrophic here right uh, yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, this is the really hard thing, I think. Um, so economists always, I don't know, uh, I always, the, the story I always tell is that, or I always preface when I talk about this sort of stuff by saying that, well, this is why economists sit alone at parties, but we, <laughs> we have, <laughs> you know, we get, we get paid to think about, um, you know, like we get paid to think about difficult questions, right? Like how much is a life worth. Yes. Right. And, yes. and things like that. And, um, and people find this off putting, right? Because, you know, on, on, the, on some sort of philosophical level, you say, well, you know, you can't put a price on human life or something like that. But, you know, when it comes to policy, we have to actually put a price on human life. Um, I mean, there's an apocryphal story about this. I don't know if it's actually true, but the reason, uh, economists really started doing this in a systematic way is that, uh, I think during world war two, you know, they, the government had asked some social scientists to figure out a plan uh, for like uh, a particular bombing. And their, the plan that they came up with was this elaborate thing where you would, you know, where you had all of these planes that would all simultaneously, you know, fly over the place and bomb. And the, and when the government asked them to explain it, they were like, Oh, well there'll be so many planes that sure some of them will get shot down, but we'll hit our targets. And like, and the government was like, yes, but there are going to be people in these planes. And so like, you know, what about those, those pilots? And the, those kind of social scientists were like, well, that's not really in our calculation because we don't know how much, you know, we don't know what dollar value to put on that. And so kind of like the Defense Department was like, well, put a dollar figure on it, right? Like that's part of the cost and benefit analysis. And so a lot of what economists have been talking about is trying to put this in perspective and think about, you know, um, when we take these measures to shut things down, we're going to save lives conceivably and so how much is it worth to save those lives right and um and then once you say like okay well how much is it worth to save those lives then you have to contrast that with okay how much is it worth to save those lives and then what's the economic cost of sort of shutting everything down and and then you you have to weigh that trade-off so you have to sort of say okay at what point um you know is uh, you know, is the cost of shutting down too much um, for uh, to, to justify or, you know, or how many deaths would there have to be for us to justify, uh, you know, certain kind of uh, lockdown policies and things like that. And it's very difficult to kind of um, get into this thing. But the thing that really makes it difficult is, um, I mean, we've become pretty decent at at kind of coming up with consensus estimates of you know, like what a life saved is worth or something like that. But at the same time, um, you know, like the, it's hard to know how many lives you're saving because in order for us to know how many lives we're saving, you know, we really have to understand, okay, what would the world have looked like had we not done what we are doing? And the only way we can answer that question is with, you know, some kind of mathematical model but whether or not we believe that mathematical model is going to ha- is going to depend on how well that's performed in the past and and when someone gives time, you and when yeah. someone gives you a mathematical model and you're halfway through the equation and they start to change the the mathematical rules that's pretty frustrating for the person that's trying to solve the equation right yeah exactly because one of the things that you're i mean essentially ideally what you would try to do is you would try to balance um you know some kind of 
criteria like well we want the infection rate to get down to like this level and if we can get it down to that level then you know shutting things down you know is going to provide this much value and then the economic cost is this much and so you know those kind of offset one another and so that that sort of justifies uh what to do and but the problem is is that it, you know yeah it's unclear um sort of what the objective is because initially, you know, most of the talk was, well, you know, we just need to get, you know, the, uh, we need to just slow down, um, you know, like the caseload so that hospitals don't get overwhelmed and things like that. And at the same time, that'll buy time for us to develop treatments and vaccines and, and all these sorts of things. And, um, I think that now it's become much more like, well, we need to get, you know, these, you know, we need to get these cases down to like this really, really low level um, so that we have, you know, uh, so that people don't have to worry about getting infected. And it's kind of like, well, you know, if we, if we keep things closed until, you know, there are zero cases, um, I, you know, I, I'm not sure how feasible that is, but the economic costs of doing something like that are going to be you know, sort of astronomical and it's not clear. And, and that's the other thing is it's really hard to do these cost benefit analysis analyses because we don't really know what the mortality rate is. We don't really know what the infection rate is. You know, in most places that, you know, when we know how many cases there are, we know how many cases there are because these are the people who are being tested. But the only people who are being tested are people who have symptoms. We're right. not just randomly testing people in the population. And right. I think that's, that makes it really difficult because you see such variation in mortality rates and you see such variation in infection rates based on whatever sample that you're looking at. And it makes it really hard to kind of judge, um, you know, exactly what the costs are when you don't know what those numbers are. You know, it's, it's interesting that you, you mentioned that I, I, I've just pulled something up from, uh, this is from Bloomberg is the, uh, is the, the source that I'm using here, it's uh, talking about the state of Florida. This is a story that was written two hours ago. And it says in Florida, uh, people 65 and over account for 26% of all the cases, but 83% of all the deaths. People 0 to 24 uh, don't account for any percent of the deaths. There's been one death out of 3,049 cases in the state of Florida from people ages 15 to 24, people ages 25 to 34, there's been almost 6,000 cases, 14 deaths. That's uh, 5% of Florida's deaths. Uh, 8% in the 35 to 44% range. That's, uh, in case you're wondering, 31 deaths. Uh, people 45 to 54, they've had 7,070 cases, 70 deaths. You can figure out the math. I mean, there's, and my other concern with the way that data is being collected, when I look at this from any sort of a, and I, I use this term carefully here because no one's ever going to accuse me of being scientific, but I do have a problem with some of the, the way that they're, they're coming up with formulas here or, or criteria here is the, the better word. When someone is in a nursing home and they're essentially in hospice care and they're in their final days, God bless them. And they die with, and they happen to be COVID positive at the time of their death. I think you have to be careful. And I'm, I'm re I read a specific case about this. It was an 83 year old man who was in hospice. He was in his final days and he tested positive for COVID. They called it a COVID death. Now, did he have COVID? Yes. Did he die? Yes. Did he die of COVID? That's a stretch. Did did COVID yeah. did COVID speed his death up by a matter of days? Perhaps is that worth noting? I guess is is did those days have some value? That's that's probably in the eyes of the family. When you're in hospice, you're you, as a rule, you're 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 you know your your a quality of life from a percentage standpoint is really low. I, I, that's, that's what bothers me a little bit is, is it, it feels to me like something that should not be at all of a political football. I mean, we're all in this together, whether you're old or young. I mean, you're talking about, you know, our boys, you, my, your wife, uh, you know, everybody out there is affected by this. If there ought to, if there's ever been something where you ought to all sort of be pulling together a little bit, it's something like this. And it feels like, 
both the right and the left, it, it's so it's become such a political football that the, the numbers get lost, truth gets lost, the ability to analyze this subjectively gets lost. That's what really bothers me. Well, I think the other thing too is, uh, I mean, the real important point here is when we talk about lives saved, we have to think about um, we have to think about actual lives saved. So what I mean is that there are some people who were going to die anyway. Now, they were going to die regardless of whether this virus came. Um, or, given that the virus is here, they were going to die if they came in contact with it. right? And some of those deaths are not really preventable. right? I mean, if, and so if, if those deaths aren't preventable, then what I really mean is like no policy that we enact is going to save like some some people, and that's a hard thing to say, and it's a hard thing uh, to get people to wrap their minds around. But what you know, what you're really trying to prevent is sort of excess deaths, right? So you're trying to figure out how you know if we do, you know, if we lock down, um, you know, if we lock things down how many lives are going to be saved? And the relevant question is sort of, okay, how many people would have got sick and died, but who now never get sick and don't die because they didn't, you know, uh, because they, they, they weren't in contact with it or because a treatment gets developed later on that they wouldn't have had access to earlier or something like that. And I think that gets to the point too, is that um, when we talk about how much the government is willing to pay, you need to have uh, to, to sort of, um, to combat this sort of thing or how much the economy is willing to, you know, what economic costs we're willing to bear or something like that. Um, you have to think about it in terms of lives saved, not just number of deaths because, um, uh, because the other thing you have to think about is, you know, when everything's locked down, you know, I mean, we're also saving lives because people aren't, um, you know, driving as much. So you get fewer car accidents. Um, you get fewer fatalities from those car accidents and things like that. Um, and so, you know, when we, but so when we look at things like what we should really be measuring this against is sort of like how many people are dying, um, relative to how many people normally die during this period of time on like an average annual basis or something like that. Like that's like sort of like a starting point or a benchmark to kind of think about, okay, what's the cost of the virus? And when you're making these different policy changes, you know, you're affecting all of these different, um, you know, outcomes, um, whether you sort of intend to or not. And you have to kind of think about how all those things kind of, uh, interact with, with one another. But yeah, I mean the, the, the political thing, I mean, I don't know. I think we're kind of just at a point right now where everything has to be political. You have to line up with your team and talk about how, how mean and terrible the, the people are on the other side and how noble, like, you know, uh, your side is. And yeah, there's no one in the middle of the field. It feels like there's yeah. just it feels like there's just these two crowded sidelines just hurling barbs at one another, and there's there's nobody in the in the middle of the field, you know, kind of playing the game out or or trying to reach some sort of a of, of an agreement of, of the the rules of engagement or something. I don't even. I, I'm trying to come up with a sports analogy, and I'm failing miserably. But it, it, it yeah, there's just there's nobody. It just doesn't feel like there's anybody in the middle on it. It's just every everyone is. These extremes and all the way to, you know, Fauci today, you know, talking about schools in the fall being a bridge too far. I I don't know how responsibly someone can in his position can say that in May about something that is still a full three months away. I, I, I find that I find that to be very difficult to stomach, honestly. Well, I I guess too my uh, what I would say is that. Um, I don't hear enough people talking about this is that we need to have, I don't know, like an order of magnitude more testing than what we have right now. Um, you should be able to get a test and you should be able to get a test really cheaply and you should be able to get that test regardless of whether you have symptoms or whatever. Agreed. Um, and these things, I mean, we talk about, you know, universities, uh, returning in the fall. I mean, honestly, um, you know, what universities probably need to be doing is they need to be figuring out how they're going to, to test people 
and how they're going to trace these people, uh, you know, and where they've been and, and who they've been in contact with and things like that, because that's really the key to, you know, safely opening up things is that if you can, if you can test and trace, then you can isolate the people who are the ones who are coming into contact with it instead of just kind of isolating everybody because there's an outbreak and we don't really know who's been, who, you know, who's been exposed. And there's just not enough. And the other thing is, is that by having a lot more testing, we get much more reliable data because we're, if we start testing people who aren't sick and who don't have symptoms and things like that, then we're, you know, we're going to get a much better indication of sort of how contagious this actually is, um, how deadly it actually is. You know, when we're only testing people who have symptoms or who are, you know, or who show up and, and say that they're sick, you know, that then we're not going to get, we're not getting reliable data. You're getting a biased sample. Every, you know, everybody in your sample doesn't feel good. Right. And so they, that's not, um, that's not telling you what, uh, is going on in the general population. It's telling you what's going on in this subset of people who have, uh, you know, uh, in the population who have a fever or, uh, you know, a sore throat or something or can't smell things or whatever the case may be. I know you don't necessarily know these numbers, but I'm curious, just your kind of general thoughts. You are, you, you've, you've been, you've been in Oxford a good while, as you mentioned, you're tenured at Ole Miss. You've been there for a bit. Uh, you, you are involved in the, you know, you're a sports fan. You're, you're not, you're, Probably not your typical economics professor, in my opinion. Um, what can you can you put a any kind of a of a just a rough uh, number on what the economic impact on a town like Oxford, on a school like Ole Miss, would be in the event that you know the universities just blindly listened to Fauci today and said, you know what, it, it's a bridge too far, we we can't do it. We're not going to have online. We're not going to have on campus instruction in the fall which means no sports, means no football season, means at the very best a, a very delayed start to a basketball season. It, it would be, you know, everything that we're used to in the fall in a, in a town like Oxford would, would essentially disappear for, for a year. What would that mean economically? So it's really hard to uh, – it's really hard to put a dollar figure on Oxford just because the, the data that uh, I have access to is not – sort of reliable enough to, to trust because Oxford is just not big enough. But I think this is, this kind of complicates, you know, um, the relationship between Oxford and Ole Miss in the, in a sense that in a lot of ways, Oxford depends on Ole Miss for, um, you know, for its businesses. Right. I mean, sure. There's a huge difference being, I mean, there's a huge, di like we, like, I mean, we have people come in for, you know, to present their research and things like that on Friday afternoons. And like, you know, in the fall, uh, we basically tell people, you know, uh, unless you're willing to stay with somebody who lives here, like, you know, you can't come present your research on a football weekend because there's nowhere to put you. And if we can find a place to put you, it's going to cost us a ton of money to put you up. So, you know, we're not going to do it. And just, you know, the difference between, a a football Friday and Saturday and a non-football Friday and Saturday in Oxford is just, I mean, it's, it's insane. So you, um, you know, I mean, there are a number of businesses that rely on that, on that, uh, traffic that comes in, uh, you know, for football weekends and baseball weekends sure. and, and basketball games. And, sure. you know, there are certain restaurants in town, you know, for example, that will, that, that would do just, find just, you know, normal Oxford or whatever. But there are a lot that, you know, sort of rely on this constant, you know, influx of people and visitors and things like that. And, you know, sort of like the marginal restaurant is, is going to, um, is, is really going to struggle. I mean, we see this already, like, you know, I mean, in Oxford, there's always like, uh, I'm not going to name names, but there are always places, right. Where like every year there's like a different restaurant. Yeah, right? sure. Of and, course. And, 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 and things like that. And, and so, um, you know, those places are already struggling, right. To, to sort of kind of like compete. And so sometimes that's an individual thing. Like sometimes maybe it's just not a good restaurant and sometimes it's just hard to compete with the other restaurants that are available. But, you know, that sort of thing is going to bleed over into, you know, more, you know, successful places because they rely a lot on, on that influx of, 
of people. Well, yeah, and it's more than football games too. It's it, it is absolutely the the seven football games on your campus a year. I mean, of course, I'm not downplaying that at all. Yep. Not any. I, I get it, but you you lose the move in week kind of when when parents are yep. bringing their kids up, and that's a monumental time in in in, in people's life, in a family's life, and. You're dropping your kid off for college, and then they come back with uh, with the rush. What Ole Miss has now gone back to an early rush, and so a lot of times, uh, the, the parents that that were up a week before they come back because they want to be there for bid day. And what, no matter what you might think of that, it's a huge weekend for for the town, and and you have uh, you have orientation weekends, and then you have uh, junior visit weekends. A lot of times they do those when there's not a home game on campus, and you've you, you've got the home games, and then you have. Uh, you have graduation and you have move out weekends and you have all these things that are, it's a constant deal. And then you mentioned basketball and then into baseball and uh, in, in Oxford's case, double decker. And then you have graduation and move out and all of those things. You lose all that when you don't have on-campus instruction. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm, there's no way to really put a, a dollar figure on what that means. And if you double that up and you take it away from Mississippi state and from Southern Miss, what it means from a, a tax collection in, in, in the state of Mississippi is monumental. It's yeah. it's 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 irrecoverable, I mean, you know. And so, at some point, which gets me into kind of my, my final line of questioning with you a little bit, which is, there seems to be a little bit of a belief out there among some people, and I'm not accusing them of not being intelligent or not understanding money or whatever. But there's some people that are like, well, you know, we got one stimulus package. Why can't you give us another, and then another, and then another? And I don't know that that. That maybe is a failure of, of the education system. Maybe it's a fa- I don't know what it's a failure of, but I don't think people understand that at some point that bill has to be paid. That when there when there's a lack of when that tax revenue doesn't come into the to to the state of Mississippi or it doesn't come into the city of Oxford, it doesn't come into the federal the federal coffers. At some point, programs get cut, jobs get cut, things get cut. There's no there it's it's a credit card bill, and at some point you must pay it. Yeah, and I think, well, I think to me, um, this is kind of where economists are kind of really important in, in all of this is that when we're thinking about policy, the question is kind of like, how much do we spend? So the way that I think about this, I mean, one of my big pet peeves, I guess, is this is not like a typical recession. So I hear people and it's really frustrating because I even hear like fellow economists saying things that, I mean, frankly, you know, it's kind of like, it sounds like they just kind of memorize something from a textbook and then this isn't like the textbook, but they're still repeating it. And I, it's like, um, cause I, I see so many people comparing like, Oh, well, this is like the highest rate of unemployment that we've had since the great depression and, and things like that. And to me, first of all, this is kind of like a really weird, uh, um, it's a really weird, comparison because normally like if we're in a recession there's uncertainty about why we're in the recession or why the recession is so bad right or something like that like there is in real time it's very hard to figure out like what the precise problem is i mean if you go into the literature there are still people who are debating you know some of the um you know uh some of the policies you know that got put into place after the great depression and things like that right so the idea that in real time, you know, we have, you know, perfect information about what to do and, th- and that sort of thing is, is sort of nonsensical. But like here, this is, this is not a recession like we typically think of. Like we know why unemployment is so high. We've told people they can't open, right? So like if you tell people they can't open, then people don't have jobs to go to. And if they don't have jobs to go to, then they're going to be unemployed. And when people act surprised at those numbers, it, I, th- I think based on what I saw on your Twitter feed, you feel the same way. I, I'm, I'm angry at the people that feign surprise at the unemployment numbers that try to turn that into some sort what, what did you expect? I mean, when you, when you shut the economy down and you shut the marketplace down, of course the uh, unemployment's going to skyrocket. I mean, that, that just, that's, that's elementary. Well, and I think, the big, I think the big issue is this is probably, like to me, this is kind of like the most telling statistic that I've seen is that if you look at, so I, I have a friend at the Federal Reserve, and he got access to uh, data from ADP, who does payroll for something like you know thirty million workers or something in the economy, and he was able to get you know like sort of some of their like confidential data to kind of figure out what's happening with wages. And one of the things that he found is that if you look at what happened to um, wages on average, in so if you just take the average wage 
um, from March to April, the average wage in the economy went up by 5%. And that seems really odd. And so what they did is they went and looked at like why it was up by 5%. And what they found is it's entirely a composition effect. So what I mean is, is that the reason the average went up is because so many low-wage workers are just not working. And so since they're not working, they're no longer in the average. So the average goes oh, up. Yeah. And so, and I think this is kind of, I think this is kind of where the disconnect comes in with the numbers is that the sorts of people who populate Twitter are likely to be people who can work from home, right? They're likely to be people uh, who can, um, you know, uh, who can work remotely. And so to them, this is like an inconvenience, right? But they're still getting paid. And it maybe they're like their life isn't as enjoyable as it was, but like they're still getting paid, they're still doing their work, and maybe it's harder, you know, to do the work. Maybe it's harder to concentrate. Maybe they're not getting as much work done as they normally do. But like that's a really minor problem to have. And but if you're somebody who you know whose job is shut down, you know, it's a much different experience for you because now you're at home and you're not working and you're not getting paid. And like sure, you might be getting unemployment and things like that, but you know. Um, you're going through a much, much different experience. And I think this gets back to when we talk about stimulus packages and things like that. I mean, one of the things that bugs me is you have all these people who are like, well, we just need to enact all of these policies where their policies are policies that are designed to try to like get the economy moving again. And it's like, I don't know why you're trying to get the economy moving again when we have significant parts of the economy that are shut down. Like, if you give me more money and tell me to go to a restaurant, but all the restaurants are closed, like, what am, you know, like, how does that work? And so to me, I think the better way to think about this is um, you have to think about this almost like, um, almost like an insurance policy in reverse. So like, you know, we all drive cars and we all pay our insurance premiums or, or hopefully we all pay our insurance premiums. Yeah. So we, we, we pay our insurance premiums. And so what we're doing is we're just throwing all of our money in a pile. And then we're saying, look, we don't know which one of us it's going to happen to. Right. But some of us are going to get into car accidents. And so when we get in those car accidents, that money is going to be used to make us whole. Right. Yeah. And yeah. the way that I think about the, the lockdown is the lockdown, it's a government-imposed cost on a lot of people. They're telling you you can't do this sort of thing. And so, but the government can do, they can do an insurance policy in reverse. So they can pay out money to the people right now who are harmed by them closing things down. And then in the future, they can collect taxes, um, which are, I guess, the premiums here, right? And they can collect those things to pay for, the, to pay for it. And but, but if you think about it like that, it helps to focus your mind on sort of what kinds of spending that we should be doing rather than, um, you know, like the typical sorts of policies where, that, that we might try in any sort of ordinary recession. And I think where this gets in with the stimulus packages, I mean, what economists have really tried, you know, really try to do is figure out, okay, how much will we be willing to pay um, you know, to, uh, to save lives for the entire economy as a whole. So if we take the life expectancy of people, you know, in the economy, um, and we figure out like what the, what the value of those years of life, uh, would be. And then you, you know, I mean, this is, this is overly simplified, but like, if you take that amount and you multiply it by like the mortality rate, it gives you a sense of, you know, what, um, you know, what society might be willing to pay, right, for this, um, for this sort of thing. And if you look at these estimates, the estimates are really, really big, but they're really, really big because human life is valuable. Like, so economists have estimates of, you know, what's the statistical value of life. And like the most recent estimate that we have is that like a life is valued at about $10 million. Okay. And so when you start thinking, well, one life is worth $10 million, well, you start thinking, well, if we can save a lot of lives, right, this is, it would be worth a lot of money. Um, but of course, the thing is, is that the cost from these shutdowns is being borne by the people who are suffering, right? It's not being borne by 
you know, it, it, like it's not necessarily the people whose lives are being saved who are paying money to, to keep their, you know, to save their, their own life, right? Like there are people whose lives are being saved. They're getting that benefit. There are people whose lives are in disarray. They're, they're bearing the cost. And so then what you have to think about is, okay, what would the, what should the government do? And if you look at these estimates, like reasonable estimates of like what it would be worth to prevent deaths, given life expectancy, given like the mortality rate that we, that we have and things like that, you're talking something on the order of like $3 trillion. And so that's a lot of money. Um, but, but the thing is, is that the government, but the way I look at this is that it should be the government's job to basically say, okay, we're going to spend the $3 trillion to compensate the people who are bearing the cost of this thing. And we're going to send money to those people and to compensate them for not being able to work um, or, or, or whatever other costs there are. Now, that sounds really simple, but in reality, it's hard. So it's how do you get the money to the people who need it? Right? And that's one of the issues that we've had. And we've already spent $3 trillion on this already, right? And so if you buy the estimate that, well, that, you know, we should be willing to spend $3 trillion, well, we're already kind of there, right? So, um, you know, suggestions of new policies have to take that into account. Now, you might argue that, okay, $3 trillion might be the number, but maybe it's worth it to overspend because you're going to spend it very inefficiently. Like when we send every single person a check, there are lots of people where that check is very valuable to them because it's the difference between, you know, a meal and, and uh, no meal, or it's a difference between being able to pay their rent or their mortgage or whatever and not being able to pay it. But for other people, this is just a nice little check that they get in the mail. And so some of the spending is kind of wasteful in the sense that it's going to people who don't necessarily, uh, who aren't like harmed. And so in reality, because it's hard to target these things, you're probably going to have to spend more than sort of like what these estimates are about what it's worth. But it's also important that we think about what the government is actually doing and not just the dollar figure that they're putting out there. So are they actually getting money to people uh, that need it the most? And is this money going where it needs to go? And, you know, how much sort of like leakage is there, right? So how much of this money is being funneled to people who, you know, who don't really need it, but are sort of taking advantage of the system or, or something like that. In the end, who's going to come out of this as the winner? Is it is it going to be, I mean, that's a really silly question, but if you think about it, it's not. Someone's someone's going to ultimately make a decision to think for his or herself, right, as a university president and as a business owner. Um, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to give too much credit necessarily to Elon Musk today, but he said, hey, look, we, we, we can't do this, and if you're not going to let us open in California, we're going to move to Texas. We're, we're going to go someplace where we can open, we're going to do it now. At some point, someone's going to do that, and, and the decision will either backfire dramatically or it will pay off dramatically. Is is that kind of what we watch for? I mean, kind of last thing? Is that we're watching for someone to, to stand up and say, nope, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to follow the leader here. The data says that I should open my business, my school, my whatever, and that's what we're going to do and kind of put your reputation on it? Well, I think one of the things is that's actually nice about the United States is that our sort of federalist system sort of makes it to where the states um, really have all of the power. And and actually, if you want to be really specific, I mean, think about like the, the localities really have all the power. I mean, Oxford was doing things before even the state was doing things. Right? Yeah, so, yeah, sure. And so I think that like that is a really good thing um, for the United States because you get a lot of variation in terms of what people are doing. And so that allows different states and different cities to kind of experiment with different uh, ways to handle this. And then you can kind of um, and then the, the states and the cities that are doing it really well, then other people can potentially copy uh, sort of what they're doing. Um also, like a lot of other countries have been trying a lot of different stuff, and it's worth paying attention to what these other countries uh, have been trying uh, to try to figure out, um, you know, what exactly, um, you know, what exactly we should be doing. I mean, like a prime example is lots of people have been talking about Sweden, and it's kind of hard to figure out what what's really going on in Sweden because, again, like you have all these Americans who are trying to turn Sweden into uh, some kind of like American political point, which is, you know, where we are right now. But the, um, but I mean, a lot of like, uh, you know, there are a lot of their sort of doctors who have kind of been like, look, the, the long-term strategy is that we need to develop immunity 
And so we're going to take steps to, to kind of close things down. But some of this we're going to do deliberately, you know, like, so, I mean, they shut schools and they, and they made universities go online and things like, things like that. But other things they kind of, you know, kind of left to the public to like, look, it's bad for you to go, uh, you know, sit in a crowded restaurant. So, you know, don't do that. And, you know, uh, I mean, there's some geographic variation, but, you know, the restaurants were not uh, as full as they, as they typically were and things like that. And so I think that all that different experimentation is going to teach us a lot about what we should do uh, in the future because, you know, like this is going to happen again at some point. Like, I mean, pandemics, you know, uh, occur, you know, from time to time. I mean, they're rare, but they, you know, but they happen. And so, you know, we really have to try to learn from what they're doing. And I think the other thing is, Maybe, maybe, you know, one of the things I want to point out is everybody is so negative right now and everybody is, uh, is sort of complaining about everything, whether it's, you know, the politicians are getting it wrong or, or, you know, like, you know, we need, we need more stringent restrictions or we need less stringent restrictions or, you know, like, or, you know, this sucks. Why are we doing this? Like, you know, everything is so negative and I, I just want people to take a minute and think about how lucky that we are to live in the time period that we live in right now. I mean, we live in uh, the United States and we live in the United States in the wealthiest, uh, you know, version of the United States that's ever existed. And, you know, uh, we have things like the internet and, and television and all these sort of streaming services to keep our, to keep us occupied. And, you know, um, and you know, there are lots of people out there who are struggling, but there are also people who, um, you know, who have the means to get through this, you know, regardless. And that would not have been true. You know, uh, if we, if we go back a hundred or 200 years, like the, the number of people who could have gotten through this without assistance is, is dramatically lower than it is now. And, you know, and, and I think that we need to kind of keep that in perspective is that yes, like this is terrible, but also like those, you know, those of us who are going through it, we're, we also happen to be living at sort of like the best time in human history to ever have to like live through something like this, I guess. And so, you know, I mean, but also, yeah, I think when it comes to like universities and things like that, there's going to be innovators and there's going to be people who actually think about these things. And there's going to be people who come up with creative solutions and hopefully, you know, the people who come up with creative solutions, hopefully these things work out for the best because we don't, you know, uh, you know, sometimes experimentation leads to bad outcomes and we kind of want to avoid those bad outcomes. But, you know, there are going to be people who get this right. And, you know, and so we need to be thinking creatively. We need to be um, encouraging people to come up with, you know, alternatives to the kind of status quo and things like that and really um, – and really pushing on these things to kind of figure out, you know, what exactly we can do about this and, and start being much more uh, sort of proactive than reactive. Like everything we're doing now is just kind of like reacting to what we see in the data. And, and you know, and like we said, with the testing, that's, that's, a, that's the big problem is that, you know, uh, we need to have much more testing and we need to have much more testing now and we need to have much more testing in the future. And we need those tests to be cheap. So which means we need a massive supply of them. And so, you know, we need to, um, you know, we, we need to figure out how um, we can get systems in place to start reopening schools and reopening universities and reopening other businesses and, and um, you know, and, and doing so in a safe way. But, you know, in a safe way where, you know, we, where things have some semblance of normalcy to them, right? And I think that, you know, that's the other great thing is, you know, um, the United States, like you know, people come up with creative solutions, you know, to problems every day that you never, um, uh, could possibly imagine. And like in a lot of cases, you know, after they, they, they come out with them, uh, it seems kind of like, you know, it's almost seems obvious because it's such a good idea that you're, you know, you're sort of like, why didn't anybody think about that before? And, you know, I kind of look forward to what people come up with and, and, and I hope that there are people out there who are coming up with these creative solutions. Um, because, you know, like, like I said, we, we need to start being much more proactive and less reactive. We need to start thinking about how to, 
um, you know, how to turn things around and how to get things, how we're going to get things back to normal and what the criteria is to get things back to normal. Well said. I really appreciate it. I hope you're right. Look forward to uh, that day when I get to see people like you out at the, uh, at the ballpark and it kind of feels feels normal again as we sit in, in uh, lawn chairs and bake on a softball field that I, I, I won't uh, I mean on a soccer field I won't I won't complain I won't complain uh, maybe about that ever again hey thanks so much for your time on a on a here on a Tuesday night I know it's uh, the dinner hour there at your house so uh, apologize to your wife for me keeping you as long as I did and I uh, look forward to seeing you down the road all right thanks for having me I thanks to Josh for his time today on the beer garden. Thank you for listening. Really appreciate you being a part of the show. All the feedback that we get really is appreciated here at the MPW Digital uh, Network family of podcasts. Until next time, that does it for this edition of the Beer Garden presented by Oxford Crystal. Take care.